We are back. It's time to do as we like to do on this program, uh, delve into the realm of science. We were just talking about uh, developments over in Italy with the Vatican. Um, here's one not from the Vatican, but from uh, the Italian Republic. Apparently, Italians have a different view of sin than do Americans. A recent study by the psychology magazine Risa Psicomatica asked Italian men to rate what it was that made them feel most guilty. A thousand Italian men and women aged 25 to 55 listed overeating, that is, gluttony, as the worst of all excesses. Spending too much money ranked second on the guilt list, followed by neglecting friends and family, failing at work, and not keeping an eye on one's physique. Dead last among the seven deadly sins in Italy was infidelity. Reuters commented that perhaps we shouldn't be shocked to find that people in the land of Casanova care more about staying slim than staying faithful. All right, here's a startling item. Uh, Men, it is said, have often tried to seduce women by plying them with alcohol, but a new study suggests that men might have better luck if they buy them a double espresso instead. Researchers at Southwestern University found that when they gave 108 female rats a big jolt of caffeine, they became very receptive to the overtures of male rats. Scientists aren't sure why, but they believe that caffeine stimulates a region of the brain involved with sexual motivation. One caveat, since rats generally don't drink cappuccino, they never had caffeine before, so it's possible that a Viagra effect would not be as powerful among women who drink coffee every day. Well, research continues, but we suspect this may have had an unsuspected uh, role in the vast expansion of Starbucks around the world. Speaking of rats, scientist Upinder Bala and colleagues at the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore, India, used probes in the rat brains to determine that they not only can see stereoscopically and hear stereoscopically, but rats can smell in stereo too. This enables them to identify where a smell is coming from in 50 milliseconds. Apparently rat brain processes the smell signal differently depending on whether the scent first enters the right or left nostril. We have another rat study that's uh, worthy of spending a couple minutes on because it's a little bit hard to explain but I think it'll be worth the effort. Uh, We mentioned this program some months back that there's a suspicion out there in the world of psychology that toxoplasma parasites, which infects half the world's population, might have something to do with mental illness, specifically schizophrenia. It's been found that a a surprising number of schizophrenics appear to have antibodies to toxoplasma gondii. This is a common parasite found in the gut of cats. It's one of of these uh, nasty bugs that can cause problems uh, with pregnancy, which is why pregnant ladies are advised not to empty the cat box. The parasite is happy to inhabit the gut of cats. It uh, gets shed in eggs. It gets picked up by rats and other animals that are subsequently eaten by cats. And it turns out the organism has a diabolically clever way of getting back to the cat. It alters the rat behavior, so the the rat, which normally will avoid feline uh, urine smell, like the plague, will all of a sudden be oblivious to it. 
Makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, cats don't want to eat uh, d- dead or decaying prey. They want to catch a live rat. So if you can induce the rat to wander out where there's cats around, well, then if you're the parasite, that's a very good thing. So apparently it falls upon the lot of some scientists to study the effect of mental illness in rats or at least behavioral alteration in rats by seeing how they respond to the smell of cat urine. The smell of cat urine apparently induces a near panic in rats, as it does in this correspondent. If you've ever had a cat get inside your house and do his business where you didn't want it or left your car window open, I think you'll know what I mean. But anyway, scientists studying this rat and this rat behavior alteration discovered that if you gave the rat antitoxoplasma drugs, they would spend less time in the feline-scented areas. In other words, they return to their more normal behavior, wanting to get the hell away from that smell. Which, let's face it, is a good thing if you're a rat who does not want to be eaten by a cat. But here's where it gets weird. These researchers gave the rats not an antitoxoplasma drug, but they gave the rats haloperidol, which is used to treat schizophrenia. It's an antipsychotic medication. Well, rats given Haldol reverted also to more normal-like behavior, that of avoiding, uh, avoiding cat smells, which makes people again suspect this is not obviously um, proof, but it does indicate there may be a connection between behavioral alteration in humans and infection with Toxoplasma gondii. Apparently, valproic acid, which is a mood stabilizer, also had some effectiveness in uh, making rats behave more normally. This is pretty interesting stuff. Wouldn't it be amazing if it turned out that many cases of mental illness were caused by an infection? We mentioned a couple of weeks back that there's some uh, compelling evidence now that obesity might be related to adenovirus infections. Uh, we now are looking at heart disease in a new way, figuring that a lot of uh, plaques in the arteries of the heart may be related to infections. And of course, um, it's now well established that the infection by Helicobacter pylori, a bacteria, is a major cause of gastric ulcers. In fact, now that we uh, treat people with an antibiotic regimen, the rates for having to have surgery on your stomach for ulcers have dropped by a factor of 10. Speaking of eating and disease, from the New Scientist magazine, February 4th, uh, issue. It notes that uh, concerns are rising with chronic wasting disease in North American uh, deer herds. We've talked about this before and we'll talk about it again. But new scientists noted that it's uh, not good news for North American deer and it's not good news for anyone who hunts them for food. Deer infected with chronic wasting disease, which is similar to BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, carry a significant amount of the abnormal prion protein in their muscle, also known as meat, also known as venison. Glenn Telling of the University of Kentucky at Lexington and colleagues infected the brains of mice engineered to be susceptible to chronic wasting disease with tissue from the thigh muscle of an infected deer. A year later, the mice developed neural symptoms typical of the disease. Said telling, if I were a hunter, I'd be cautious about eating deer in areas affected. But in this point in time, uh, that could include the whole U.S. of A. So you may want to give venison a miss. Of course, research continues as to what the prion protein does. And there's maybe a breakthrough uh, with with, uh, research done in Cambridge, Massachusetts by Andrew Steele and Cheng Cheng Zhang. 
We know, of course, that abnormal prions cause BSE in cows and variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease in humans, but the role that healthy prions play is not clear. They've now discovered that adult stem cells in bone marrow lose their ability to regenerate when their cell membranes are stripped of prion protein. So apparently healthy prion proteins sustain stem cell activities. How they do this remains unclear, but uh, this is the first step in understanding how uh, the rogue protein gets destructive. We will return to this topic in the future. I've noted in previous programs that uh, when I was in medical school, these diseases were referred to as slow virus diseases because it was assumed that sooner or later somebody would find a virus. And when it turned out that it's actually a rogue protein that is both infectious and disease-causing, well, uh, science got a new lesson in, you know, what's out there in nature. For an equally startling and perhaps more startling uh, bit of news in in microbiology, I would refer you to the current edition of Discover magazine on the stands, which talks about the rather momentous discovery that viruses, which have long been regarded as uh, lowly evolutionary latecomers, may have been involved in the development of life on Earth very early on. It's long been assumed that viruses are some sort of degenerate bit of protein uh, and genetic material that sort of uh, came about after life was established on Earth, but uh, with the discovery of what's been called a MIMA virus, a humongous-sized virus with a genome, that is, capacity to develop to, uh, to code for different types of proteins, far in excess of that of any previously discovered virus, all of a sudden people are open to the possibility that this MIMA virus may indicate that uh, viruses are at least as old as the other branches of life and that viruses may have been involved very early on with the evolutionary emergence of life. This is a radical change in thinking about life's origins. This is truly interesting stuff and we're going to try and devote a more extensive talk uh, on it in a future program. But on the cover of the March Discover, uh, there's Charles Darwin. There's been a great deal of good news of late about scientists going around to, you know, reasonable theologians and pastors and and people uh, who are religious leaders and getting them on board with the idea, so obvious to so many, that there is not an inherent conflict between the world of religion and that of science, e.g. evolutionary biology. But uh, one thing that's worth mentioning, commonly misunderstood about evolution, is it is assumed by people that evolution inexorably moves toward greater complexity. This is not always the case, by any means. Uh, Evolution can develop toward more simplicity. Case in point, uh, in the plant world, dicots versus monocots. It appears that the somewhat more simple design of, say, grasses, including, uh, you know, ryegrass in your lawn and, and the corn that you eat, a uh, somewhat more simple way to organize plants probably came long after dicots had evolved. Uh, grasses apparently are an evolutionary newcomer in spite of the fact that they are more simple in many respects. Well, now with the discovery of the mimiviruses, it appears that uh, while, while this still may be true, there may have been a, a move towards simplicity, <laughs> the whole picture is a whole lot more complicated than previously suspected. So stay tuned. We're going to come back to that one. We will also be speaking to someone over at Aerojet here in Sacramento about their contribution to the NASA Pluto mission. 
but we haven't been able to nail that down um, uh, as of yet. But stay, but I promise you, we are going to talk to somebody over there about their booster rockets and going out to the ninth planet, if it is a planet. And if you're looking for planets uh, like Earth around other stars, astronomers involved with NASA's uh, search for Earth-like planets have, uh, have produced a list of candidates. Actually, they came up with two lists of five. One is for uh, nearby stars, which uh, are a good match for our sun. They're at least three billion years old. They have a mass no more than one and a half times that of our sun. And they appear to have a lot of iron on board, meaning that the stars are, in essence, recycled material from previous stars. Uh, that's the case with our solar system. It's thought that you need to have the same uh, mix of heavy elements in order for planets to form and increase the possibilities of life. So if you're out there looking, here's the top five on the list of SETI candidates. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The top candidate, Beta Canum Venatorium, a sun-like star 26 light years away in the constellation Canis Venatici. Possibly second runner-up, 18 Scorpii, a popular target for proposed planetary searches. It's an almost an identical twin of the sun. And 51 Pegasus, which was the first normal star beyond our solar system known to have a planet. A Jupiter-like planet was detected in 1995, but researchers believe that 51 Pegasus could also harbor Earth-like planets as well, like our solar system. Now, curiously, they, they listed five other planets which have slightly different criteria which were thought to be the best prospects for the Terrestrial Planet Finder mission, which uh, NASA is embarking on. Oddly enough, most of these have arisen previously in science fiction. For example, Alpha Centauri B is part of the triple star, star system which is closest to our sun. This is just 4.3 light years away. Unfortunately, you can't see Alpha Centauri uh, from our latitude here in California. It's long been considered one of the places in the Milky Way that might offer terrestrial conditions, often cited in science fiction tales, including Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. The star Omicron 2 Eridani, also known as 40 Eridani, is a yellow-orange star 16 light years away, roughly the same age as our sun. Apparently, it turns up in Star Trek literature as Mr. Spock's home turf. About 11.8 light years away from the Earth is Epsilon Indy A, which, uh, which is a pretty good candidate, slightly smaller than our sun, a little bit cooler. It's been found to have a brown dwarf companion. Well, the Star Trek fans consider it the home of the Andoran race. In the original Star Trek series, it was the base of operation of an evil entity called Gorkon. The two remaining stars, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani, were actually the, uh, the first stars that were looked at when the search for extraterrestrial intelligence commenced in the 1960s. They're like our sun, and they're both very close. Um, in, science fiction, in the science fiction realm, Tau Ceti has served as a locale for many works. Apparently, uh, there were aliens involved uh, on the TV series Earth, Final Conflict from Tau Ceti, and Epsilon Eridani... 10.5 light years away, uh, by some science fiction accounts, is the parent star for Vulcan, Mr. Spock's home planet on Star Trek. But evidently the Trekkers are fighting over this, and some of them have come to favor another star in the same constellation.
And you know, something we mentioned in the first segment, uh, with that little Valerie Plame apology, um, lost in the shuffle of all this, this, this hubbub over Dick Cheney is the fact that Scooter Libby, under indictment for the leaking of Valerie Plame's name, a few weeks back, indicated that um, the outing of Valerie Plame came from higher-ups who led him to leak the identity of the CIA case officer. This prompts Radio Parallax to ask, when you're the assistant, the right-hand man of the Vice President of the United States, a man, by the way, considered to be the most powerful Vice President in U.S. history, how many people represent your higher-ups? As far as we can see in the administration, that would be Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby's boss. Then, of course, there's George W. Bush, the president, and uh, we suppose his aides, Karl Rove and Andrew Card. But, but really, in an administration where you're the, uh, you know, you're the right-hand man of the vice president, this is not a lot of people. Uh, so we sort of think of this in terms of Star Trek. A situation like maybe on the old TV show when they would beam down Spock, McCoy, Kirk, and Ensign Rabinowitz about the time that they're going to be attacked by some alien ray guns. Let's face it, inevitably, the guy that gets vaporized by the ray gun blast, Ensign Rabinowitz. It's never Spock. It's never McCoy. It's never Kirk. It's always the new guy. If you're going on a list of higher-ups that are going to be blamed by Scooter Libby, and your list consists of George W. Bush, the president, Dick Cheney, the vice president, Karl Rove, the administration's mastermind, and Andy Card, well, now, who do you think is going to get the role of Ensign Rabinowitz in this Star Trek remake? I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for more in segment three.